0: All right, Second Peter chapter one. We started this on Wednesday evening, so we're not in the very beginning, but I do want to still introduce it some again. Uh, you know, uh, it, by the way, it connects very closely to the timing and topic of First Peter, uh, which we went through recently. And I hope you remember that that one was uh, shortly before A.D. sixty four. So is the book of Second Peter. And what significant happened in A.D. sixty four? Anybody remember? What? The fires that burned down half of Rome or about half of Rome and Nero blamed that on the Christians so it became illegal to be a Christian. Very quickly after that, tradition tells us that Peter uh, died. He was one of the early ones that died uh, as a result of the persecution that began to develop uh, from Rome. Uh, So this book was written before A.D. 64. The book of 1 Peter was written from the perspective of How they were to handle what was happening from the outside. Especially as it related to very quickly increasing persecution from Rome. They had been dealing with it from Jerusalem. But then... To add this from Rome, going to be worse. And so First Peter's dealing with how do, you, how do you live your life with all that happening around you and still remain faithful to God? How do you survive without lashing out or trying to get vengeance or whatever? How do you survive as a Christian with outside pressure? 2 Peter's written from the perspective of how do you survive with the problems that are inside? And especially as we'll get into it today, or at least we're supposed to, uh, we're going to talk about those people who were teaching things that were not true. Uh, see that's not new to us today maybe it's more prevalent today i don't know but it's not new there has been error that has occurred ever since the beginning uh it was a, there was error in the old testament there's error that people have taught during the new testament time always as well and so some of that's going to come into play today as they dealt with internal pressures how do you deal with them how do you live with them well how do you continue to be the person that god wants you to be so this book deals with that i also told you uh, you know, I don't like to spend a whole lot of time with uh, original language stuff because I don't want people to get the impression that you have to know the original language to understand the Bible, and I don't want you to think that I'm like a some kind of scholar on it or anything, but there's, there's, there's a word here that is significant to the book that I talk about all the time, and it's the word that's translated knowledge in Second Peter. That's the key to this book, and it's the word epinosis, uh, and gnosis, I think most people know, means knowledge. And that's why we call somebody who believes that you cannot know about God, we call them an agnostic. That's against knowledge. Well, the book, this book has the word epinosis, which means higher knowledge or uh, deeper or more intimate knowledge, a better understanding. It's not just knowing that God exists. It's knowing who he is, knowing what he wants from us and who he wants us to be and, and what he is like and what he provides. It's knowing more about him than just that he exists. It's just like. Uh, very much so a husband and wife, when they get married in the beginning, they think they know each other, but they don't, do they? I mean, when you've been married 20, 30, 40 years, do you know your spouse better than you did 20, 30, 40 years ago? That's a better knowledge. That didn't mean you didn't know him before, it means you have a deeper knowledge, and that's what this book is dealing with. And so, if you were here on Wednesday night, we got into that part about, you know, add to your faith virtue in verse 5, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, Perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness love. I went through a little bit of that on Wednesday night. The only thing I really want to bring out about it before we keep going is it's a, he's talking about a growth process. You know, you start with a faith, but you don't understand everything. You don't know everything, and you certainly don't have your life disciplined to where you want it to be, and so you add things to it. you add a virtue to do what you 're what you're taught to do. You gain more knowledge of God, and as that continues to progress, you get things like patience and self-control and then finally, you get to that place where love. see most people today reverse that. We start with love because we think that love's some kind of an emotion that just overlooks everything. but love 's at the end of this list because what love really is, remember what Jesus said when he said, "If you love me, what?" You keep my commandment. Well, you can't do that if you don't know them, do you? And so the idea is that love is based upon all of these other things. That's what love is. It's not an emotion. It's an action. So, there, so the Christian life is a building process. All right, let's pick up again there in verse 8. For if these things are yours, and that these things, so that list, you know, add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, and all of that. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think, again, the key word there is the word knowledge. And that's why I highlighted it. Because when we think about fruit, what do you think of? If I talk about fruit to Christianity, what do most people think of? Conversions. Yeah. Yeah, if you study with somebody and they obey the gospel, you consider that fruit. Right? And that is... That is an accurate uh, way to describe it. But is that the only fruit that results from the life of a Christian? What about the changes that happen within me? Is that not fruit as well? And so what he says as he puts this together is. If you. The connecting. For if these things are yours. You have a level of faith. And what's the next word? Abound. If these things are yours and abound or overflow. Then you will not be unfruitful in the knowledge remember when james said that you look into the perfect law of liberty and continue in it you're not like the person that looks in it and turns away and forgets who he uh, who he is so he says be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself if, if, if you're a Christian and you don't continue this growth process, if you reach the place where you say, you know what, I'm retired or I'm on vacation or I've done enough and I can sneak into heaven right at this level and you quit growing, what happens is you quit producing fruit in your life. And you can sit and you can listen to a hundred sermons, a thousand sermons. You can sit through a thousand classes. You can read your Bible at home. You get one of those calendars so you read it through in a year, right? And you do that year after year after year after year. And if you don't grow, all you're doing is looking in the mirror and then walking away. And so what, what Peter's saying here is the only way you're going to be fruitful in your life, and that's talking about your own growth, is to get in God's Word and actually put it in your life. All right, keep reading. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. There's an interesting thing that happens, and I know that many of you have experienced this, uh, interesting thing that happens when you go on a mission trip. Uh, because most of the time, mission trips are set up into areas where that are pretty big contrast with the way that we live here in our lives and so you go on these trips and you work with people that deal with so much struggle and everything and you start to gain a new perspective on your own life while you're there and you start to think you say things like i'm never going to complain about what i have again you know the air conditioner went out and so i'm going to have a fit about it yeah well i have a roof right so you do that when you're on those trips and so you think my life is going to be changed and when you go home it's very easy to in the beginning Hold on to that and then a month or two later then the air conditioner goes out and you're going to complain again because your perspective went backwards. Okay, the reason people obey the gospel is because they come to the realization that they are lost. They have no hope without God. And so I become a Christian so that I will have hope. And the excitement is, I know. I know what's happened here. I know what God has done. And now for the first time, I have hope. But the problem is, the further I get away from that, the easier it is to forget about what it felt like. To have that place of feeling no hope. And you start to get comfortable. And when you get comfortable, you don't grow anymore. So he says, you're short-sighted, you don't see the end of the goal, and as a result of that, you don't remember, or the reason you don't is because you don't remember what it was like to be back here. Keep reading. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now when you read that, I don't want you to read that word stumble, meaning you're never going to trip. That word stumble there means stumble as if to be lost. Now he's not saying you cannot fall away. What he's saying is if you spend your time in God's word and you keep applying and you keep growing, you won't fall away. Will you fall away when you quit that. When you quit feeding yourself, when you quit growing the way that you should, that's when you're in trouble. But he says, if you keep going, and by the way, this this ought to be very powerful for us because I know that sometimes one of the things that we struggle with is this idea of, uh, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know. And so I know that one of these days when I stand before God, he's not going to be looking at a perfect guy. I know that. And so I just, you know, is it tempting to say, well, have I done enough? Well, the answer to that question has got to be no, doesn't it? Because the only way that's going to change anything is actually his blood, right? So as you read this, what you're reading about is a direction where he continuously washes us in his blood, not a perfection. When I stumble, what do I do about it? Repentance. I'm I'm not going to go that direction anymore. And so I, I ask for forgiveness. I turn my life back around. What if I turn around and stumble again? I'm going to ask again. I'm not going to lay there and you know, let it all go away. So what he's saying is keep going, not because you're going to get to some kind of perfection, but because God knows who you are, and so the more you keep going, the more he's able to bless you and provide you with, well, hope. Keep going. Oh, I forgot to add that verse 11. Entrance will be supplied to you abundantly. Uh You're not going to sneak your foot into heaven. The only way we're going to get in is by the blood of Jesus. And if the blood of Jesus is going to get you in, it's more than enough to do it, isn't it? Okay, now we keep reading. Therefore, see he just keeps carrying this thought further. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent. To stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Okay? So, he's, let's start with this ending. He's going to die soon. He knows that. And, in fact, he's been expecting it. And the time he's referring back to, if you remember... After the resurrection of Jesus, there was a discussion that occurs. He's got a fire on the shore of the sea, and he's got some fish on it. And they come up there, and there's a discussion. Peter's worried about, you know, who he's been. And Jesus says, Do you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. Well, feed my sheep. You love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. So that big discussion goes on. And then all of a sudden you read about Peter going to be carried about where he doesn't want to go when he gets older. And the text tells us that what he's talking about is his death. He knows it's coming. He knows it's not going to be an experience that he is anticipating in a physical sense. But knowing that it's coming is putting him in a place to where he says, I don't have time to waste. And so I know you've heard the, these things. He said, I know you've heard these things before. I know you've heard me say these things before. But even though you've heard it and even you remember it, I'm going to keep saying it. And not only that, but he added, I want something to go on after I'm not here anymore. So I'm writing it down. And we're studying it even today. Why? Because we can't, it's so easy. Again, the further you get from your conversion, or certainly the further you get from studying and spending time in God's Word, the more you get comfortable, the more you don't want to grow and don't care about it, and the more you forget about who you used to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on that note, I'll, I'll, I will tell you, uh, you know, some very few, there there might be a few that bring this up every once in a while, but very few. Uh, you know, I don't just spend whatever number of hours, eight to ten hours on a lesson and then preach it and then put it in a file cabinet till I die to pass it on to the next generation. I reuse them, I rewrite them, restudy them couple reasons one is because I need to keep growing and I want to see how I have grown from the last time but the other reason is well I need to remember I mean can you imagine if we taught or or did a lesson about the Lord's Supper once in your lifetime can you imagine how connected we'd be to the Lord's Supper if we only took it once a year you see what happens to the remembrance and so that connects directly to what he's saying here about why he's speaking and why he's writing even though they know all this stuff Is because when they get, the further they get disconnected from it, and the further they get away from this growth process, the less they have the hope that's provided in eternity. Okay, so he knows he's about to die, and he's going to write this all down. 16. For, another connecting word, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. "...but were eyewitnesses of His majesty." So when they told people about the resurrection of Jesus, they weren't just you know, basing that off of what they had heard, had they? They had seen it, right? They had seen Him. Keep reading. "...for He received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain." Now, when you first start reading that, you're thinking that his baptism, aren't you? But Peter was there at what we call the transfiguration. In fact, he's the one that made that statement. Remember, when he's there, Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, and Peter's there, right? And Peter looks at it, and you know what he says? He says, this is good that we should be here. Let's build a tabernacle to all three of you. And what happens? God overshadows two, leaves one, and says, this is my beloved son, hear him, Right? Okay, did that was that a rumor? Peter saw it, didn't he? So he said, that's why this was not about something that we had heard. We actually saw it, but there's more. 19. We also have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So he says, not only did we write what, and, and teach what we saw, but God gave us miraculous inspiration so that we could record not our own thoughts and our own interpretations of what we saw, but what God actually meant with it. See, that's why the Holy Spirit, is a. It, that's why this is an inspiration that Peter would, or Paul would use that word was being God-breathed. It's because if I'm recording my witness of something, if I've seen something, and, and, and maybe I have to, you know, I see an accident, and the police come out there, and they've got the person there, and they want to ask me what happened, I tell them what happens. Well, a year and a half later, that goes to court, and they put me up there and say, tell me what you were thinking at that time. I can't remember what I was thinking yesterday. Right, uh, An eyewitness could be one thing, but there's a limitation to it. But an inspiration where God gives them the words, where they actually record not only what they saw, but what God meant of it. Well, they ought to be listening, right? See, we read this, we, meaning the religious world, read this and say, see, everybody kind of just interprets things themselves. This is not about your interpretation, it's about their writing. They didn't interpret anything. They didn't see what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration and interpret it. Actually, Peter interpreted it when he said, let's build three tabernacles. And God said, no, that's not the way this is going to work. So he says, what, I'm, what I have been t- reminding you about is not just because of what I'm seeing. It's because that's what God's telling me to remind you about. Keep reading. Now there's a contrast here. It's, it's a bad place for a chapter break, in my opinion, because... We lose our thinking. We stop thinking and then we start the next one. But there's a connection. He's just talked about these inspired writers who recorded what they recorded because that's what God told them to record, right? But, contrast word, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. There's a lot in those couple of verses. Okay? Not only are there people like Peter and John and Paul and Luke that are writing what God said by inspiration, but there's some other people working, too. There's other teachers. And they're teaching. And they're writing, too, by the way. Yeah, there were people that that wrote. And so how were they supposed to know how are they supposed to know if somebody wrote something whether or not the person writing it was believable? How were they supposed to know that? Well, a couple things. One is they could test it. They could test it against the, the scriptures that were recorded. Yeah. The other thing is, you know when Peter showed up, he could do miraculous things. He could actually pass on miraculous gifts. Nobody else could do that but the apostles, right? Okay, so you got a situation where there was evidence behind that. See how everything kind of connects together? There was evidence behind who they were. But there are other people out there that you'll be tempted to listen to who are false prophets. And by the way, a false prophet never stands up and says, Listen, I know this is what you believe, but I'm going to take you away from it. Can you imagine if the devil showed up in Genesis chapter 3 to Eve and said, Hey, look at this fruit. And she said, Nope, God said, Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't touch it. And he, can you imagine if he said, Well, you're right. He did say that, but come on. It can't be that bad, right? Let's go ahead and touch it. That's not the way he did it. He didn't, he didn't present himself as a false teacher. He said, yeah, you, you're right, but you know that wasn't really what God meant. So he didn't just jump up and say that, he didn't, pre, false teachers don't stand up and present themselves as false teachers. There's a secret way. I've read books. In fact, I've read books written by members of the church who had the idea years ago that the church wasn't what they thought it ought to be. And so they gave a, a a pattern a plan this is how you could take the congregation where you were working to what uh what i've envisioned for it to be and what they said is you push forward one little step at a time and when you get out there all of a sudden where somebody starts complaining you back up one step and then they feel comfortable and then you start walking again a little bit further and this time they go past the last complaint mark till somebody complains again and you back up but you're further from where you were right they don't just try to destroy the church. He says what they do is this secretly. And there's, some, there's a key to this. Let me say you saw that many will follow. And because of them, what will be blasphemed? The way of truth. Because of error, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In other words, everybody out here in this world that's following man's made doctrine looked at you and says, you're a Pharisee. Or you're too judgmental. You're not compassionate. You're not open-minded. You people think you're the only ones. Nobody ever talks about the truth like that, do they? Of course they do. That's because people want to believe the error. But there's more. I love this next verse because of one little word. Verse 3. By covetousness, which means they're, they're just doing it because it benefits them, right? By covetousness... Uh, They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now the word that I want to highlight there is the word deceptive. Anybody got anything else? What? False or feigned words? The, The original word is the word plastos, which means plastic. Or at least that's where we get the word plastic from, from that root. Here's what that means. It means a word that you can just bend it and make it mean what you want it to mean. Like plastic. You take the ingredients of plastic and you put them together and you form whatever it is that you want to form out of it. It'll do whatever you want it to do, right? And so these false teachers are not inventing new vocabularies. They're using the same words that that Peter and the other apostles are using. They just mean something different when they use the word. They mold it into what they want it to be. So when you hear people talking about things like, and I know this goes back, this is not new, this, is, this has been a problem for a long time, but you hear people say things like, we need to go to the unchurched, and what you hear from that is somebody that is not a Christian, right? Okay, but that's not what they're saying. Now what the word means, by the way that they use it is, that's the people that don't have any religion at all. Let them stay in their religion, but go to the people that don't have any religion at all, because they believe that anybody with any religion is good. You see how that word changed? Yeah, what about the word baptism? Is that word not changed? I mean, literally means a burial including a resurrection. And yet, if you say baptism to somebody today, they'll say, oh yeah, I was baptized when I was seven days old or whatever. Not the same word, is it? doesn't mean the same thing. So the reason these teachers are so successful in getting many, many people to follow them is because they're secret and they twist things around and use the same words that you're using but they mean different things and eventually they lead people off. It's pretty serious. Isn't it? You know you get the idea here? As we went through 1 Peter and he was talking about all those things happening from the outside, when he got to this inside stuff, do you see how more intense it is? Listen... We can defend from the outside a whole lot easier than we can defend on the inside, because you don't always suspect it on the inside. Keep going. Verse uh, four. Oh wait, the end of verse three. God I mean, God knows what's going on, right? Uh, what's happening in our world even today with religious error is not going to be something that's going to be overlooked, is it? Okay. No, they don't. Yeah. 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 They're just smarter than you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. All right, verse 4. For, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who after leave, afterward would live ungodly. Stop. Not the end of the sentence, but think about what he's saying. There's a reason the connecting words there is because it's really easy. You think about Job. Job's complaint was, as he was sitting in that that ash heap with all the pottery and the trash that was there, and he's hurting so much, and he's lost so much in his life, what he says is, he looks around and says, there are people out here who are not living their lives anywhere close to what God wants them to be, and they're doing great. So why is it that... I'm a person that's doing everything I can do to serve God, and yet things happen so bad to me. And that's the question that's been asked all throughout time, right? Why do the evil sometimes prosper? Why do the righteous sometimes uh, suffer? And so that's the easy thing to do when you look out and you see error. Has it it been successful in our world? Far more successful than the truth. And so you start to say, well, maybe they're going to get away with it. Maybe there's no reason for me to keep in this battle. And he says, no, don't think that they're going to get away with it. And if you need an example, look back in history when God, when God did not overlook sin. But there was, there was some patience, wasn't there? I mean, the days of Noah, when God showed up and said, you know what, I'm tired. Man's thoughts are only evil continually. Could he have destroyed everybody that day? But he didn't, did he? 120 years later before he did, Right. Okay, so there is some patience. That was, So we look at it and we see what's happening. We say, why? Why does the wicked prosper? And God says, well, it only looks like they're going to prosper. God's being patient. One of these days, there will be a judgment. Now let's finish that sentence. I stopped there because it had just talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Moses was, or rather Noah was saved out of the flood, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, anybody saved out of that? Okay, let me, let me start verse 6 again turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Wait a second. We don't use Lot as an example of righteousness. We actually use him as an example of somebody who made a terrible mistake, don't we? So, why would we use him as somebody who made a terrible mistake and God just called him righteous? They're actually not a contradiction. See, Lot choosing which land to go to, wasn't, it was nothing wrong with that. What was wrong with it is where he was going to end up was going to be a place that where the influence on the person he wanted to be was not what he should have had. See, he's living with Abraham and his family at this point. He's certainly doing what God expects, just like Abraham. But when you get in, you get in Sodom and Gomorrah long enough. What ends up happening to him? We don't read a whole. We don't even read a whole lot about where Lot ended up. But you know, we know he started to send his daughters outside, didn't we? See, that's what happens when we stay in the world long enough that the world starts to influence us. But you know what? God still saved him out of that, didn't He? Okay, Now let's see, there's a parenthetical statement we want to pull up there in verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Don't think that Lot ever got comfortable with what was happening there. But he was comfortable enough to stay. What did it cost him? Two daughters, two sons-in-laws, his wife... All of his friends, and by the way, the influence that would happen that causes his two daughters that went with him to be a problem as well. And for him to have a problem too. See, all that happens with the influence of the world. Now see why he's telling all this as we get into verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment uh, for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh. In the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So then is your connecting word or your conclusion word. He says, All this is true. Since we know that it's true that God could find Noah and his family in this huge world of wickedness, he could find Lot in this huge city of so much wickedness and protect them, then the same thing is true today. So though you look around this world and you think how powerful error has been, how powerful false, false teachers again, it has been, God still knows who and where his people are. And he knows how to take care of them. And we don't have to fear the judgment day because he knows. He knows. But these people on the opposite of here, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Anybody have any other words there? authority there's another translation glorious ones comes up and so people start thinking about angels because the next verse talked about angels so you connect them there that's not what he's talking about what he's saying is even the angels of god know who's the authority if satan was a created angel which he was did he know what he was doing in genesis chapter 3 yeah that's why he was deceptive. Because he knew what he was going to do. Even the angels know who the authority is. But the reason that we have so much false teaching, he's saying, that's happening around us is because they deny the authority. You know, authority is the foundation for all error. You know, I I know God has been pretty simple in what he says. Now, things that we don't need to know for salvation may be cloudy. Things that are error may be kind of gray. But when it comes to things like worship, he's been specific. The plan of salvation, he's been specific. If I go beyond that, the reason I go beyond that is because, well, that's what I like. Or what I want, which makes me the authority instead of him, doesn't it? Keep going. But these, verse 12, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, and they are accursed children. They don't sound very pleasant, right? But the thing is, doesn't God tell us that even the devil and himself can appear as an angel of light? Yeah. Just like what Patrick was talking about a while ago. Nobody's gonna, nobody that leads people away believes that they're, they're leading them away. They believe they're leading them to something better. I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure some do. Some do, I'm sure. But a lot of it happens because they don't know. They don't know. It becomes the blind leading the blind. But you know who do, who does know? Well God knows, and the reason people do some of those things is because it, you know I, I tell you what i 've never been an incredibly popular guy, but I could be I could be i could uh, I could start teaching what 's popular, really polish that up good, and I could be popular,' It'd be popular, but God would still know, wouldn't he? And they do it because it benefits them, it benefits them. Not because God is the authority, but because they place themselves as the authority. It's all about me. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Verse 17, 15. They have forsaken the right way and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Why was it that Balaam wanted to go? Do you remember? Here's what happened. Here's what happened. So uh, he gets the opportunity to curse God's people because others have heard just what they've been capable of doing. So curse God's people so they'll be defeated. Well, he can't curse God. What prophet want to curse God's people, right? So he says, I can't do that. And then what happened? Money. Yeah, offered him some money. You know what he said? Hey, I'll go talk to God again. Maybe he'll change his mind. He didn't change his mind did he so what happened next more money i'll go ask god again and god said all right go ahead go ahead and go and he went and on the way is when he beat that donkey and the donkey started talking to him i, I that is one of my my favorite stories in all the bible or accounts in all the bible because uh i could imagine it can you imagine how many times have you talked to your pet and they talked back <laughs> if they did what would you you'd run wouldn't you Yeah, so this donkey talks to him, and what he says is he rebuked him. Now, the the prophet, he calls it a dumb donkey because he can't speak, right? Doesn't mean he doesn't have any intelligence. It means he can't speak. God even used what he, the the point is truth will be successful no matter how God has to do it. So error out here, all these people that are leading people away, the success is on them. But when the truth, where it comes to the truth, it's always going to do what it's supposed to do because God's the authority behind it. That doesn't mean it's going to change everybody. It's going to do what it was willing, what it was designed to do. Uh, verse seventeen: These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest to whom the gloom of darkness is reserved forever. We know about dry seasons here, don't we? That's why we have sprinklers, because you get these dry seasons and uh, you don't get enough rain for a month or six weeks or whatever, and all of a sudden you start having fires, right? Okay, we know about that kind of stuff. In the middle of all that, in the afternoons, you see a storm popping up and you think it's gonna rain, right? But what happens is the wind blows and that thing just blows right over and rains somewhere else, right? What good did that do you? So you got all that hope, but nothing came out of it. So the point he's making about this context of these false teachers is this I can follow error. I can follow error. And completely and fully believe that I will stand before God in eternity in a saved position. How many times have you ever been to a funeral where the preacher or anybody else there went by the casket or talked about it and said, well, at least they're in a worse place. Nobody ever says that. I've never heard that once. I can fully believe that I'm going to be in a better place and not be there because of what I'm following is error. I got a cloud that says, oh, you got all this hope, but it doesn't produce any rain. No hope through it. The only thing that provides hope is truth. And truth only comes from God. Okay, keep going. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness... They lure through the lust of the flesh, through licentiousness, the ones who have actually escaped from, the, from those who live in error. So we come up with these, you know, people don't want, okay, let me back up and start that again. I'm going to get in trouble right here in the last two minutes. Uh, you know why we like or don't like preachers? It's not got anything to do usually with the truth. It's got to do with how good they present it. So we have circuses. You know, when the preacher, we have a full, we got to fill a pulpit position or any position, any preacher position, and we have a circus. We bring in four, five, six people, and they get up there, and they perform for us. They put on a show for us, and then we get to the end of it, and we say, well, this is my favorite because this one was good, and this one was terrible, when in fact, this one might have presented great truth, and this one might not have. See, the reason people get led away is because we have these great, swelling, wonderful speakers who stand up there and convince people that what they're saying is truth instead of turning to God's Word and finding out. Why is it that cult leaders are so successful? Because they have those personalities that draw people in and they speak great and saying things that people want to hear. Okay, I'm going to stop there. If you're on to me, we'll talk later. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning to study your word. And we're so thankful, Father, for uh, the message that's recorded there continuously that we can continue to spend time there and continue to grow. Help us never to forget uh, the hope that you provide for us. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.